great stories from amazing people. Conversations from the Marsh at Podcast Alley. This is Sports and More with Dean Millard. What do you think about the artists that are doing these online shows at home? And do you think this is something that will continue past COVID-19? Yeah, this is something we're going to see for a while. I think the only major wall that the music industry is going to have to try to figure out is how how to make money from it, um, how to exploit, for lack of a better term, how to exploit those those songs. Um, even though that Facebook primarily has done a, a, a license deal with all of the major labels, plus a lot of the independent labels, um, they're just not a sustainable future uh, to online concerts. Although, you know, a study came out a couple of days ago that said that 70% of all Canadians love and are satisfied with uh, online concerts, with the technical aspect of it, with the visual aspect of it, with the sound quality. Um, so that's a really good sign um, because in the same study, it also showed that almost 40% of people aren't going to be comfortable with going out to a large venue maybe in the next two years. Hey there, and welcome to Sports and More, the podcast, episode 48. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Depending on what time you are listening to this, I'm just glad you have joined us. My name is Dean Millard. That was the voice of Eric Alper, a music publicist that has worked with some of the biggest names in the game. And he's going to join us on this episode and on this podcast, almost anything goes. We pretty much always stay away from religion. A lot of the times we stay away from politics. I don't think anybody should be ignoring what is going on right now and uh, what is going on right now, mostly in the United States, but here in Canada as well, there is some some protesting going on, which I think protesting is, is fine. I have no problem uh, with protesting and it's uh, starting to happen around the world as well as the eyes of the nation or eyes of the world rather are on uh, North America. So I think it would be um, not the right thing to do uh, to be silent on what's going on. And um, th- this is un- unfortunately something that has been going on for thousands of years. Um, there is systemic racism in the United States. And, and, and don't, don't kid yourself if you're a Canadian and you think that there isn't racism in Canada either. Um, and we have to start calling it out. If you see something, if you see somebody being racist, you have to call them out. Yeah, that, the, exposing racists is how you get rid of of racists. Uh, and in my opinion, and 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 you know, maybe educate. Anyway, I I, I really really hope uh, you know whenever you're listening to this, uh, things will calm down soon. Um, but um, I don't blame minorities, particularly in the United States, when you see a man killed on social media, when you're watching a man lose his life and others stand around, other law enforcement officers stand around, it's the, the, the explosion happened. So, um, you know, my, my thoughts and my hopes uh, for the people that are peacefully protesting and don't even get me started on the fact that the president of the United States had, or, or you know, the, there were protesters that were tear gassed and then he had a photo opportunity. Seems pretty clear what happened. Anyway, 
We're going to have a fun show regardless of that with Eric Alper, who is, uh, as mentioned, a music publicist. Uh, He has worked with music royalty from Ringo Starr to Ray Charles to Snoop Dogg and a whole lot of cool people uh, in between. Uh, We're going to talk to him about the changing music industry, COVID-19's impact, as you heard in the clip off the top of the show, some new music that you might want to check out because there have been some new albums dropped in the last little while. We're going to discuss super groups as well. We're going to also talk a little baseball and some basketball because Eric's a, a big baseball fan. Uh, and then our top three today is your Deserted Island albums. Uh, we're going to talk to Eric about that, but the three specific albums you could listen to for at least one year on a Deserted Island. We'll have our poll question and some big news from Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. Uh, so all that's coming up in the next little bit. Uh, Before we get to it, though, I want to do our weekly tribute, and that is going out to Arcan RV, a uh, RV dealership uh, in the uh, Edmonton and uh, Calgary area. Uh, They also have a uh, uh, dealership in Carstairs as well, but uh, two in Edmonton. And uh, the reason I want to tribute these people is the fact that uh, my friend Guy Fleming's uh, wife, Moira, is uh, going back in to help out during this uh, situation and was going to be quarantined uh, from her family for uh, the next couple of months. And they were looking for some affordable way for them to do it. Uh, You know, nobody wants to really live in a garage, and I'm not sure if they had a garage available. Um, So they were looking at some sort of accommodation, and Arcan RV stepped up and uh, helped them out, uh, providing them uh, with a, a free trailer. So... First of all, thank you, Moira, for getting back uh, into uh, uh, helping uh, into the uh, the medical uh, field and on the front line and helping us. Uh, and thank you, Arcan RV, uh, for stepping out uh, and stepping up and helping uh, somebody in this situation. It is wonderful. And um, when my wife and I are looking to rent a trailer this summer, I know where we'll be going first. And uh, I know Guy will get by with a chocolate covered uh, marshmallow popcorn, as his kids once made us. And when we were recording a pipeline show episode at his house one day. So the weekly tribute to Arcan RV. Thank you very much uh, for stepping up and helping out a friend of mine uh, whose wife is helping us all out on the uh, front lines. As for our top three uh, presented by Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports, we are going to talk about deserted island albums. But before that, I got to tell you, You've heard me talk about how realistic Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports is. It, it is the most realistic thing. These guys are digital assets that you use uh, digital currency to buy and sell with. Uh, you can have a top-ranked player. Let's say you are uh, you want to be a Peter Pocklington. you got Connor McDavid, and you want to sell him to the highest bidder. You can do that. Or you can build your roster uh, to a championship. Uh, you got 23-man rosters, 27-player reserve list, daily roster moves, a wickedly unique playoff format. So all that is cool. Plus, check this out. There are eight franchises that are still left of the 31. And there are only 31 professional hockey franchises on this platform. So there are eight left. They're already drafted because we've had a season so far and they were just auto-drafted. But what they are doing is, with those eight franchises, they're throwing all the players back in. And if you join now, you get to draft your own team. And if you're an owner out there listening to this podcast that already has a franchise that also didn't get to draft your team, you can put your players back in the pool and draft your own club. That's what I'm doing. They're simulating right now on EA Sports. I'm two games from a championship with the roster that I currently have. 
I didn't get to draft it. I got in late. So I'm throwing it back in the pool and I'm going to draft my own roster. And they're going to have all this done before the NHL starts their playoffs. And then they will have a playoff format. So it is the perfect opportunity for you to get in on the ultimate franchise fantasy sports platform and play in their hockey league and draft your own team. So here's how you do it. www.airauctioneer.com slash UFF sports dash NHL dash fantasy dash franchise dash auction head there make a bid on a franchise you'll be notified if you are outbid it is so cool in this format you own the game so get in the game all right our top three topic is deserted island albums and uh got some uh, pretty good responses uh, to this one actually uh you can hit me up on twitter at duck millard and uh, give me your thoughts on uh, who would be your top three deserted island albums. Uh, you're on an island, nobody else all of a sudden washes up. Uh, pick your era eight track <laughs> record, CD, uh, cassette, iPod, whatever it is. You have to listen to three albums for the next year. Sean O'Connor says Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, Pink Floyd, The Wall, and the band, Brown Album. Sweet. Chris uh, Kushernick says Audio Slave, self-titled debut. Number two, Led Zeppelin Four, And number three, Dr. Dre, 2001. Honorable mention to Nirvana, MTV Unplugged in New York, and Godsmack, self-titled album. At 17, Curry's going with The Clash, London Calling, Nirvana, Nevermind, and the band Music from Big Pink. Jeff Wright says, uh, Tool, Laterus, Pearl Jam Yield, Massive Attack, Mezzanine. And Christopher Harold's going with Rolling Stone, Sticky Fingers, Fleetwood Mac, Rumors, and ACDC, uh, Stiff Upper Lip. Oh, also, Last Visible Dog saying, The Ramones, Rocket to Russia, The Headstones, Teeth and Tissues, and social distortion, white light, white heat, white trash. So there you go. Uh, those are uh, some top three deserted island albums uh, for uh, you to have listened to for the next year. That's how this works. You're only getting to listen to those albums for the next three. So my honorable mention is Sweet Bejesus, Policeman's Creek. You'll hear that shortly after our interview with Eric Alper. Uh, they're the official band of uh, Sports and More, the podcast, and their debut album, Policeman's Creek, is available on iTunes. I love it. Three for me would be Pink Floyd, The Wall, uh, as others uh, have picked it. It's just extraordinary. Uh, it tells a great story, and I'm sure there's there'd be always something I could find going on uh, in that album that I've missed. Number two, I'm a huge Neil Young fan. Um, I thought about going with Harvest, uh, but I love On the Beach. Um, I, I just absolutely love it. Revolution Blues is one of my favorite Neil Young songs. Uh, so there's some quirky songs on that album that I really love. And the number one would be the White Album from The Beatles, uh, just because it is, uh, again, kind of like The the Wall. I'm, I'm sure you'd hear things and different, discover different things about songs. And um, it's got just some extraordinary groundbreaking uh, tunes. On that, so that's my top three. Uh, hit me up 
on Twitter at Duck Millard. Let me know yours and uh, you can get more details and get in on the auction and draft your own team for the ultimate franchise fantasy sports at www.uffsports.com. By the way, at Podcast Alley, we'll have one-timers with Eric Alper a little bit later on this week. Uh, Tyler Rumi from Good Buds and One Hitters will be on the Cannabis 101 podcast. It is a tremendous uh, cannabis story. And Brian McCabe and Playing Pepper will join me this Thursday, along with Jordan Bloodell, of course, on the Prospects Baseball Show. All of that can be found at podcastalley.ca. Before we chat with Eric Alper, a music publicist. Let's find out a little bit more about him with the bio. Time for the bio. Eric Alper was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario. And after attending William Lyon McKenzie High School, he enrolled at York University, taking English and math. The day after he was finished university in 1994, he started a record label that turned into a booking agency and then a PR company called Slap Happy. In 1997, he joined Shoreline Records, who put out the first EP from Nickelback. He then spent 18 and a half years with what became Entertainment One, and in 2016, started Eric Alper Public Relations. Eric, it is great to welcome you to uh, Sports and More. Um, I've uh, long admired you on uh, Twitter. I love the the questions that you put out. I'm not going to lie; every once in a while, I might steal a theme here and there to oh, to do okay. with my show. But uh, thanks for being here. <laughs> oh, Dean, thanks so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. And right back at you for the for the level of respect that you've done not only in the podcasting world but in your previous life as a as a sports guy, and now and now too. So yeah, good, good to good to talk to you. All right, thank you so much. What has life been like for you uh, during the last three months of this, uh, you know, twenty twenty to forget? Why? What's going on for three months? <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm only kidding. Um, uh, strangely, um, you you understand what a big introvert you are when you realize that your life has not changed a whit during a pandemic. Um, the ability to keep my artists that I do public relations for in the music business has really uh, allowed me to be really creative with, with what's going on right now. I'm working with the artists not only to book a lot of media and interviews as normal, but um, also trying to keep them creative in terms of doing fun things on social media, like doing posts about the Canadian Music Therapy Trust Fund or doing posts about where they shop local for the Shop Local campaign. So a lot of this stuff, look, I, I went from 950 tour dates on my schedule to zero. And once we, once everything happened, I went outside, I had a really great scream, and then I came back inside and went back to work. In fact, I'm busier now than I have ever been in my entire life because there's more artists that are releasing music, creating music, making videos. I have one band that's made seven different videos for the one song that they have. <laughs> that would have never happened before all of this. Now, I'm no fool. I know this is a disaster of a time for a lot of people. Um, but it seems that the music side of it, um, money that they're getting aside through 
you know, complete lack of record sales and music streaming services. Um, it seems like I always had the idea that if we can all get through this on the other side, um, we'll be all much better off. And, uh, you know, this is a really good time to, to connect and chill. Look, uh, we all wanted a couple of days off. We all, <laughs> we complain about that and now we have it. Um, so, you know, I think we have to continue to make the best of it because I don't know when anybody is going to be listening to this, even if it's two years down the road. Uh, I don't think things are going back to anywhere what we used to think would be normal. Yeah, I want to get into uh, in uh, in just a bit about the, uh, you know, the 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 creativity going on in the uh, the music industry and in the music world but i think we we have to uh, address what is going on um, not just in the united states but solely uh, or, or a lot in the united states i should say and and i try to stay away from politics a lot but th- there are certain yeah, things you. you just cannot um uh, be silent on it in my opinion and um you know the protests or riots depending on what city you are in and and what time it is i mean um all i can say is uh, i i i literally had to like uh turn you know force myself to turn the tv off the other day because i couldn't watch it anymore it's it's sad and it's scary yeah i i can't i just turned 50 this year just to give people a little bit of my age I've never seen this ever in my whole life. And it's funny because when I talk to older artists that I worked with, like Andy Kim or David Clayton Thomas, um, they remember the riots in 67 in Detroit. Um, They remember the civil rights movement as teenagers in the the 1960s. Um, They'll say that what's going on is very different, but I think that they have a very weird view of it. You know, I think that the older you get, sometimes... um, you kind of take a look at the protest and you think, well, it's not as peaceful as I would like it to be. Or, yeah, maybe Donald Trump is right in kind of being Mr. Law and Order and, and, uh, uh, and attacking, you know, the looters. And I, I kind of agree, you know, like you, you don't want anybody, anybody's property to be damaged by this. But um, I also think that this is, this is a guy in power that has absolutely no humanity. He's got no sympathy he has no, uh, no, no side of, of hope in him. And I get it. Every time I will post anything away from music, I will get 150, 500, 1,000 comments about what an idiot I am, <laughs> um, no, from, no matter what side of the fence you're on. Um, but I think as much as people want to complain about the Democrats or Obama and the situation that he left uh, very a large group of people, people who might feel marginalized still to this day, um, at least at least the words kind of had a little bit of calm. I don't get a sense of any of that. And I'm so happy to live in Canada where, again, I hope that people understand that no matter who you voted for, we are much, much better off than what's going down south. Um, even with our our tragic history of the way that we've treated um, the black community and also the, the indigenous community too. We still haven't made both of those right. And the Asian community as well, right? And Everybody. Yeah. It, it seems, you know, light up. Like, yeah. we've never... Human beings in general do not treat each other well. No. No. There, it, yeah. If you look at history, I mean, it's just, uh, um, you know, one uh, race after another, um, you know, being... Uh, persecuted or or uh, tortured or enslaved and uh, unfortunately over you know how many years 
Um, there are still, and, and, and I, I would think one of the things that some of the, the mayors and the governors of Minneapolis and, and particularly Texas were saying is a lot of the, the people arrested, especially in the early going of these riots were out of state. That's somebody traveling to specifically do something to make another per another group of people look bad in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, and you go down the rabbit hole, right? Uh, so who's behind that? And, and that's the scary part of it is that even if you think that you know the truth, you have no idea. Right. You truly don't. You know, if you watch one channel over another, if you read one newspaper, if you're on Twitter compared to Facebook, compared to Instagram um, or TikTok, you are going to get a different view. And if you decide to agree with that point of view, it's okay the rest of the world is going to hate you for having that view. So uh, you can't win. You're never going to know the truth. And, and it's a real scary time because truth and science, the, the two things that we never used to really question is being questioned right now. Um, and even if I thought I did know the truth, whatever that truth is, I'm not convinced that somebody's trying to fool me so they can get more money in their pockets. Like, so I, I, I you know, uh, I, I think the innocence that I think we used to have uh, of not caring about what the government does. I'm not supposed to care about what the United States of America does on a day to day, hour by hour, minute by minute. I'm too busy, but I still can't take my whole life away from what's going on. It's fascinating. We're watching the greatest television show literally happening in front of us, but it's real life. It is uh, indeed. And, and and through a lot of this, uh, well, well, through all the the um violence and and protests that are going on uh through the United States we've been living in this pandemic so you know you being a music guy what is the best song is there a song of the about there about the pandemics type situation i feel like i'm jack black right now in high fidelity uh <laughs> talking about the the uh who's your the, top five pandemic songs that's right yeah right. yeah but is there are there are there <laughs> pandemic type songs out there um, there, there is, there, there seems to be not a lot of great ones. I, I think that, you know, sometimes when artists feel the sense that they need to create based on the world around them, um, I, I'm seeing a real big difference, even with the artists that I work with, whenever they send me a song that they've created in the last six or eight or eight weeks, um, that's roughly about isolation, humanity, um, uh, COVID-19. Uh, it's, it, it's good, but it's also, I think that, our, our minds have shifted a little bit to um, where you don't get to create with other people. You just kind of want to take in what's going on and, and blurging it out. And that's rare when a great song comes along. I'm thinking of something like Crosby, Steel, Nash & Young's Ohio, yeah. where they wrote it four days after what happened at Kent State, and they released it within two weeks afterwards. Um, that stuff is rare. That stuff doesn't really happen anymore. I, I find myself going back to the comfort artists that I've loved for so long, just to breed that sense of familiarity. I've gone back to Talk Talk, and I've gone back to Marvin Gaye, and I've gone back to Drive By Truckers, and I've gone back to Sly and the Family Stone and New Order, and and all these groups that I kind of loved before all this, I'm listening to them more and more. And I think it's because I don't really know how much time in my brain I have for new music. 
when it's something where I don't think I need a lot of new music, except for my artists, new music that's out there being bombarded because I'm already bombarded by everything else. Right now, I'm just looking just to get through the day every single day, like most people. All right. Our top three on this episode is your top three deserted island uh, album. So you're shipwrecked. Uh, all of a sudden, this solar-powered record player shows up. And there are three albums that you get to listen to for the next year at minimum. What are they? I'm looking at them right now. I'm going to choose uh, Genesis, Abacab, uh, Songs from the Big Chair by Tears for Fears, and The Color of Spring by Talk Talk. Both those albums were art, were albums to me that when I listened to them, I can't believe that human beings actually made this. And it actually got released. Because sometimes the brilliant creation that people make, there's some guy sitting in an A&R chair at a record label going, oh, I don't hear a single. <laughs> uh, so those three albums for me are, are completely different, but I love them dearly. So I would choose those three. Could you listen to one band or artist uh, during the pandemic? Like if you had to pick for the last three months, you could only listen to one band or artist. Who would that be? Uh, it's Drive-By Truckers. I, I, I've been mildly obsessed with them a little bit my whole life, uh, but now it seems like every day I'm listening to them, at least one of the albums. They're, they're everything that I love about rock and roll. They're a little bit rude. They're a little bit direct. They're a little bit country. They're a little bit rock, and the lyrics are, are amazing. So uh, I'm going to choose them. So we've seen a lot of different things happening during this, uh, obviously, canceled shows, but artists are doing home shows online. I mean, what Post Malone and those guys did doing that uh, Nirvana album was amazing. Yeah. That was amazing. crazy good. And I I did not see that coming. But what do you think about the artists that are doing these online shows at home? And do you think this is something that will continue past COVID-19? Yeah, th this is something we're going to see for a while. I think the only major wall that the music industry is going to have to try to figure out is how, how to make money from it, um, how to exploit for lack of a better term, how to exploit those those songs, um, even though that Facebook primarily has done a, a, a license deal with all of the major labels, plus a lot of the independent labels, um, they're just not a sustainable future uh, to online concerts. Although, you know, a study came out a couple of days ago that said that 70% of all Canadians love and are satisfied with uh, online concerts, with the technical aspect of it, with the visual aspect of it with the sound quality um so that's a really good sign um because in the same study it also showed that almost 40 percent of people aren't going to be comfortable with going out to a large venue maybe in the next two years uh and i'm one of them i'm not convinced that we're going to have um you know a, a vaccine uh, and even if there is one um i think that this virus is going to be around for a long time so i i think we better get used to the to the consumption of not just music, but television shows and, and movies uh, from our home. So, yeah, do you think this is going to, um, you know, prevent, like, you know, what's a time frame for when you think we'll be able to go back to a concert in an arena or at a stadium again? And, and what do you think that's going to look like? Um, my best guess right now is probably going to be spring and summer of 2021 and I think it's going to look a lot different you, you know the, the one thing about when people talk about normal it's funny because nobody said that every arena has to be 20,000 people now they could actually start changing them and have five to six to seven thousand people maximum spaced 
uh, spaced apart by, by like six feet, 10 feet, 12 feet. So I think that what's going to happen is we're going to see a real uh, change in, in how we're going to be going out um, to arenas. But yeah, I, I, I think easily spring and summer 2021, I think that venues that have, you know, 50, 100, 150 people capacity, they might be hitting uh, their open sign maybe uh, in the winter of 2020, no earlier. Um, the music industry was the first one to really get hit because we rely on on fans and we arrive, we, we we rely on on community and closeness of people and a lot of people in order to make money for whoever needs to make the money. Uh, so we were one of the first to get hit, and we're we're going to be one of the last ones to come back. So how much concern is there in the music industry right now? I mean, um, I, I, I've heard, you know, Hollywood executives talking about movies and how movie theaters might look and, you know, the impact that this has had, uh, you know, the music industry must be uh, pretty concerned when you talk to people, uh, you know, inside your industry. Yeah, for sure. You, you, you know, the, the one thing that the music industry doesn't really do very well is it looks to the future. It may look to the future in terms of signing artists, but actually in, in, in terms of conducting Duro's business, history will show that they've been behind the eight ball for a lot of things. And it's, and our generation kind of started off with, with Napster, yeah. you know, the MC, the, the, the record labels just kind of poo pooed the idea. Um, they thought that physical formats like CDs and cassettes and vinyl records would be here forever. And it took them completely by surprise. And now look where we are. Um, so while I applaud Spotify and Tidal and um, uh, Google Play and YouTube for actually, you know, allowing people to listen to more music than ever before in any other time in history, it's not a sustainable income. A lot of these artists make their money. I mean, forget about the superstar artists like Ed Sheeran or Ellen John or Lady Gaga, um, who can quit tomorrow and have enough money for anybody mm-hmm. to survive on. Um, but those middle income artists, even the artists that are, that are, as, if you want to, if you want to have, if you want to make um, minimum wage and hit the poverty line in Canada as a musician, you have to have somewhere in the neighborhood of forty-five to seventy-five million streams on Spotify. That is an impossible figure for ninety-nine point nine percent of the artists out there. So I think what what's scary about it is this uh, this generation of eight to 15, 16, 17 year olds who are music fans now are not going to see becoming a musician as a viable option and as an opportunity um, to make money, which, you know, maybe they never could or should, but at least that is the op- the brass ring was there. I'm not sure that they're going to have that, which means that we're going to be missing out on a lot of great artists. The other hand, though, there's more music that are being uploaded every single day on Spotify than ever before. So... Um, because it's simply easier to create and, and upload your own music for the world to listen to. The only problem is, though, that there's so much of it, so much of it gets unheard. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the breaking point is going to be for a lot of artists. I, I, I would guess that while most of the artists I work with are fine, if they're not making money in seven or eight months from the live show and they can't do it anymore, they just might decide that they need to go get a job and leave that guitar sitting in the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's the music industry has changed so much and then this gets uh, thrown into it. And, you know, as, as much as I love being able to, uh, you know, throw my headphones on and throw Sirius XM on my phone or, you know, download a song easily, things like that. There is something I miss pre-internet about going to 
let's say record baron in Brandon Manitoba where I grew up and looking yeah. through the new CDs and and talking to my buddy about what's new and this or what's this playing and there, there's something I miss about being able to do that um having said that there are new there is new music like you said do you have a few albums you could recommend that are that are recent uh, recently come out during this pandemic yeah you, you know I, 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 for for a lot of people that you know, thinking, well, you know, there, there's no music that I that I love, or like, if I like this, you know, where do you go find music? A lot of the times, you know, Spotify has been really, really great trying to figure out the algorithm of, of who you are as a person and and what you're like uh, and, and what you kind of like. Um, you know, uh, Maggie Rogers' album came out last year, which is kind of phenomenal. Uh, I've, I've been listening to, to a lot of that. Tame Apala is great. The new Lady Gaga record is amazing. If you like her in the beginning of her career, when she was very danceable uh, and, and, and up there like that. Um, so for a lot of the times, you know, there's albums like from the 1975 that I love and Kim Burgess has a brand new album. He's the lead singer of the Charlatans. But a lot, a lot of the times though, it's just finding five or six albums from uh, the artists that kind of sound like this, that I'm kind of more attracted to. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I think it's just a matter of not necessarily listening to what I like, but also I, I think, uh, you know, more importantly, like where on earth does people go to find new music? Because we used to read it on newspaper or get that snarky comment from that record store clerk. And now, you know, now they're both kind of gone. Yeah, there's uh, there's something uh, that I that I certainly miss about that as well. Uh, you're a big baseball fan, so let's uh, chat a little bit about baseball. What players, what teams do you like to watch when there is actually baseball? I I, I love Toronto Blue Jays, and I'm just gonna say that as, as, as a as a homer because I eat the sports section every single day. So I I'm gonna go with them. Um, I'm a kind of I'm one of these guys that most people would get mad at because I seem to ride that bandwagon a lot. Um, I just like seeing people win. So, uh, you know, I was watching all the playoffs and all the world series and, uh, um, you know, I'm just a hometown freak. The, the 92, 93 world series run for the blue Jays was, and, and I was an Expos fan growing up, but I got caught up in it. And, uh, it was some of the fondest memories that I have as a baseball fan. Yeah, it, it's exciting when when you, you really feel that energy. And it's funny because it's not that different than, than being a music fan where you can feel the excitement and you can really feel that so-called, you know, that, that electricity that's in the air. Um, it's all anybody wants to talk about. And, and seemingly, you know, all of your normal basic problems uh, get set aside when something like that happens. But yeah, I remember being in the bars when that was going on and it was just a thrilling time and it's kind of, the city really hasn't had until the Raptors won. Yeah, no doubt. Um, right now, uh, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're dealing with, um, this, this COVID-19, um, the, the violence that is going on down and, uh, you know, the terrible treatment of minorities, people getting killed on video. And then you have major league baseball players and owners fighting over millions. I mean, it, this is the, this is that meme or whatever it is of that dog in the, the, the room that's on fire. And they're like, Oh yeah, it's fine. It's normal to talk about arguing yeah, about money with fine. all this stuff going on. Like, I mean, like read the room, right? Kind of, you know, I, 
I agree with you. I, and I can absolutely see where people would get that impression from. But I guarantee you that if anybody else listening that would be upset over that would be in that position, they take the money too. It's funny because I hear that a lot. It's kind of like, well, you know, why does Paul McCartney have to charge $400 for his ticket to his show? Doesn't he have enough money? It's like, yes, he does absolutely have enough money. But he charges that because that's what he can get. And that's what kind of world that, that we've seemingly made for ourselves is that, you know, not only do you as a player and as a team person and as a member of an association, you have to be very, very aware that there, there were hundreds and thousands of people that came before you that allowed you to sign that 32 million ironclad contract. Um, and so to be able to say, you know what, I love the game so much, I'm going to play it for a dollar. The only person that I think in my lifetime that has done anything that showed, not, I'm, I was going to say an ounce of class, because I don't even think that that's, that's it. Do you remember when Andre Dawson couldn't get signed and he told, I think it was the, the Chicago Cubs, he said, just fill out a number on the check yeah. and whatever it is, I'll play for that. And I think he ended up playing for like $400,000 in a time when not everybody was making a million, but still it was well below market value. That is rare. And I bet you that there were a lot of agents in baseball going, Jesus, screwed up. <laughs> because now... You know, now who's going to say that the owners are going to be able to, you know, want that for all of the players? So while it's fun and nice and, and, and hooting and hollering to try to, like, you know, put the blame on the players, it's like, I think everybody's just after whatever counts for them, whether you're an owner or a player. Yeah, I, I side with the players. I mean, they already made a deal with the owners in March, and now the owners are asking them to make a, another deal so um you know it's yeah. you know, it's millionaires fighting with billionaires is what it is and and it just it can, can you just imagine you get through covid and you go into a labor dispute i mean that would be the ultimate pr killer yeah you know what there's um i i've read a number of books based on on the uh the strike season that that happened especially when bud steely was was handling a lot of the action for the for the teams and the ownership while he was still with the Milwaukee Brewers and it, 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 the day to day politics that went on within both organizations was astounding and you read it and you think this is why I, I this is why I'm not a millionaire this is why I don't even have the ability to even think about having a team or my own company I I'm not cutthroat like this there is no bone in my body that has the, the determination to make a billion dollars and still make sure that I'm cheating on my taxes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. there, there's just something about that side of it that is like there, there's a determination and a laser focus on the dollar. Cause that's all it really is. It's just, it's nothing but money. Um, and, and the players and everybody else are just like, you know, they're, they're just entertainers. Well, and, and Major League Baseball, they really can't afford another black eye. I mean, they just got through the Houston Astros um, ridiculously yeah. intricate cheating scandal. Um, the question I have is, which is the worst scandal for baseball? Pete Rose betting, who has been banned from baseball for life, or what the Astros did last year? I think the Astros did. Me but too. I'm amazed, though. You know, going back to our conversation earlier about you know, how people are feeling and that no, you know, there's no hope. People are just angry. They're tired of seeing lies and just absolute disdain for humans. Um, this is exactly 
this is kind of it. You know, I'm amazed that the Houston Astros was able to do what they do. And I'm not going to say not a peep, but aren't you kind of flabbergasted that this wasn't bigger mm-hmm. in the new, it, it, like that they just didn't break up the team. I mean, look, they, they can't, they would have lawyers on them uh, forevermore to the baseball association. But I was just kind of amazed that not you know, as much as the players spoke out there. I mean, I think part of it also is that, uh, that there's no baseball. So there's no chance to boo. There's no chance for the beat reporters to, to kind of continue to fuel that fire. I'm just kind of amazed. I remember Pete Rose, we were talking about him in the baseball kind of, you know, round tables for years afterwards. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I just, I just look at it. Like you look at the 1919 white Sox, the black Sox as they're, they're called and shoeless Joe, and they all got banned uh, for life from baseball. And, and, you know, like you said, you're not probably doing that this, this way because it w- wasn't exactly, um, you know, there was some, I guess, some figureheads. But the, the one thing I was looking forward to about the Major League Baseball season was seeing the Astros have to go to Yankee Stadium. And, and I wanted them <laughs> to have crowd mics. I wanted to hear what the crowd was saying to the Astros. Yeah, you know, that, that's the fun part about being a fan yeah. is that you can kind of create those, those villains. But, you know, uh, uh, and then they can kind of try to figure out in their in their 29th floor buildings why baseball isn't attracting the attention as much as video games are. And it's like, well, this is it. You know, this is it. Not only are the games like three and a half hours, you know, uh, long, but you have situations like this that doesn't make it very wholesome to bring a family. And as a fan, you want to believe that everything happens by chance. You don't want to think that there is a level of prediction of an outcome um, that you were fooled. Even in wrestling, and I worked with the WWE people for years when we were doing their audio and their records and their CDs, selling hundreds of thousands of copies of their entrance music. These guys, these wrestlers and the WWE were the nicest people that you'll ever want to meet in the world. And they kept it up. They kept up the game. They kept up the their roles while they were playing, even if you think that it's fake, and I kind of do, of course. Uh, you didn't know the outcome of anything, and that's what people want to pay. They want to pay for those comic book heroes come to life. Mm-hmm. And baseball was kind of like, you know, uh, you, you, you kind of cross over that line with me. Yes or no on these five players getting into the Hall of Fame. Pete Rose. Oh, wow. No. Barry Bonds. Uh, yes. Mark McGuire. Yes. Roger Clemens. Yes. Shoeless Joe Jackson. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm an idiot. So I, I've got no <laughs> rhyme or reason for doing it. But, but, I'll, I'll, but I, Pete Rose, uh, Pete Rose did, did I think the, the one you know, P. Rowe did the one thing, and here I am, like just being, you know, completely opposite of what I would say for Shooter Joe Jackson. Um, probably because I saw Field of Dreams, and and I feel pity for all of them um, because he just wants to play catch with his dad. <laughs> um, the with, with Pete Rose, I, I think the worst thing that you can do is put your your comrades and put your your partners and put your your players at a risk for potentially losing a game that affected them in the long run. With Barry Bonds and Roger. 
I and Mark, I just got the feeling like a lot of the things that they were taking without getting really into it. I just feel like with a blanket statement, that's not going to haunt me. I feel like some of this stuff was borderline legal. And even if they took things that were illegal, I, it was just a mess. Like baseball knew that they were doing mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. and they allowed it to happen. So I, I think when you're in all cahoots with everything and you've made rules, kind of confusing for the players even if they weren't being naive on it i think with pete rose every single locker room has it that you can't bet on baseball right and he, he broke that well the baseball didn't just let it happen they let it turn their sport around i mean those <laughs> yeah. home run chases brought people back to not only the stadiums but networks were breaking into coverage when barry bonds was coming up to bat i mean they benefited more than anything else and for that reason they should be recognizing the single season home run leaders and stuff yeah well where where were you in your career when this was going on with with barry and uh uh and mark and uh and, and the others just starting uh just starting my broadcast career when when sosa and mcguire and bonds were going back and forth for those couple of years and how did you feel like as a human being well and I, as a at the time fan, I, but also I, as a broadcast yeah at the time i loved it and and that was at a time where there there was no social media the, we didn't even hardly know what websites were at least me i was i was very new <laughs> right, to it right. so there i i don't remember a lot of talk back then about what these guys were doing other than the fact that Barry Bonds's head size had grown 20 sizes from the time he was in <laughs> right. Pittsburgh right like it was it, it was kind of obvious that something was, had gone on with Barry Bonds um yeah. and and Maguire got you know you you look at Mark Maguire I'm a Dodgers fan so 88 is my favorite baseball memory I look at Mark right. Maguire in 98 uh, or 88 and Mark Maguire a little you know these guys were doing something but you didn't really hear a lot about it. So I was just enjoying the, the circus that it was. Yeah. Now imagine if you were like 10, 15 years into, into your career and, and you're on the television every night and you're reporting on this. Chances are you're probably loving this. You're getting more yeah. viewers. You're yeah. selling the company loves it because they're getting more advertisers. And, and that's what, that's what I think is so relevant to this world that I think we're kind of waking up to. Um, and not just in music, but in, but in everything. I think this is the most I've never not talked about music, by the way, in one day. Um, but, but, but it's also like, so, so everybody's complicit. Everybody loves it. Who's getting hurt? Who's really getting hurt by this? You know, the players. Okay, well, they've got every right to take whatever they want and damage their bodies as long as it's legal. But, you know, suddenly when every stadium is being filled, the, the newspapers and the 24-hour news networks are breaking into coverage, like you said. Um, astounding. It feels good. And then you get let down by them. And I think time and time and time and time again, just the general public gets let down for things. And, and I think it's kind of, you know, step by step by step, way down the line. I think we get moments like this that we're in right now. I think that we just don't trust anything that we're seeing with our own eyes and ears, which is exactly what George Orwell was saying back in in, in, in 1984 in the novel. Mm-hmm. It's like you just don't know anything. So as much as I can relate anything to music, it's, it's kind of fascinating talking to you about this because I, I think somewhere around 1994 is when I stopped following the, the, the scorecards 
in the um, in the newspaper, partly because I got older and partly because a lot of the players that I grew up with, and I was a huge Dodgers fan, which is funny because as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, Ron Say and Steve Garvey and David Lopez and uh, all and Tommy Lasorda and Fernando Valenzuela. Like, that was all my guys. But as soon as that generation retired, I kind of lost interest in it and then started really caring about real world problems like how much do musicians make <laughs> per CD? <laughs> Um, there's a great book, by the way, um, about that 1981 Dodger championship uh, of all those guys that you referenced. It's called They Bled Blue, and I had the author on one of my podcasts uh, a, a while back. So if you are uh, want to uh, do some reading, yeah. uh, it's a great, great book. Talks a lot about Fernando Mania, and, 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 and the great thing about the book is the connection that Lasorda had to all those movie stars like Sinatra and and Don Rickles and all that. So if you, if you are interested in picking up something yeah. like that, uh, I, I highly recommend it. Okay. I'm going to uh, ask you one more sports question and then we'll get yeah. into some music. Cause I have a lot of music questions and, and, and I love that you brought up uh, uh, seeing and hearing, uh, seeing with our own eyes and hearing um, because I know time stood still last year when Kawhi Leonard hit the shot because I was yeah. sitting in my in-laws living room. My mother-in-law had fallen asleep. My father-in-law and I jumped up in the air when that bounced, bounced and went in. Where were you when Kawhi hit the shot? I was in the same place. I, n- not in your, not in, well, yeah, not I was going to say place. you weren't there. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> exactly. I was in the basement. Thanks for letting me out. Uh, I was with my wife and 16 year old daughter at the time watching it. Um, eating a bowl of popcorn and, and freaking out like the rest of the whole country. It's it almost like it's shook. This yeah. country had a little bit of an earthquake. Yeah. I went immediately to Twitter to tweet about it for the four people under a rock that didn't know. And then uh, went back to celebrating. It was amazing, wasn't it? Like, but for that, amazing. for that split second where it bounced, bounced, it, it felt like three seconds. It, it felt like a month. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was, um, it, it, it was much bigger. I think than Joe Carter's home run, because I think that this was, it just the way that it happened. And from, from a really cool sports team, that uh, of, of the Raptors with Drake and everybody, it is it's just so awesome. So it, awesome that's interesting that you mentioned that. Somebody asked me about that at the time, and at the time I said it's not as big as the Carter home run because the Carter home run was for a championship, but that was the catalyst of the Raptors. So now that I look back on it, it's like, yeah, that shot is one of the greatest Canadian sports moments in history. Yeah, I would even say, like, in, in basketball history. I mean, because the Raptors were... were it, it's funny, because, you know, when, when you're... In the music industry, when you're in Toronto, or if you're having success in this country, you're really nothing in the States. I had so many artists that I worked with, from Randy Bachman to Burton Cummings to Andy Kim and, and Leona Boyd and David Clayton Thomas, they all left this country in order to make it big elsewhere, because they didn't have Canadian content rules that, that allowed them to get heard on radio stations. With the Blue Jays, it just seemed like the Americans stopped caring about the World Series because the, the Toronto Blue Jays were in it. When mm. the Raptors were in it, it was almost like a worldwide thing because basketball was cool. Uh, Toronto is a hip, multicultural city. Was around um, the best players were were around. It just seems like, like basketball. I mean, basketball now I, I think is ten times cooler for the for the you know eight to seventeen, eighteen year olds than baseball ever was in my whole life. Yeah, that's a really good point. That championship is going to, when we can get back to playing basketball again, raise the uh, participation levels. All right, I want to talk about some music, but I want to go off something you just said. 
why why don't you think the tragically hip were as big outside of Canada than they because they're massive in Canada why do you think the tragically hip never made it as big outside of uh, the 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 borders it's amazing how many things have to go right in order for anything to be a success um if you think about how many people are involved with the TV show, all those nameless credits that, we edited that nobody really notices. Um, the music industry is the same thing. You have to have hundreds and thousands of people working across America and around the world uh, at your record label to make something a success. And because the stakes are high, not only are, do they expect you to sell 10 million copies of something, but also make their quarter. Sometimes something breaks down in the in the process of releasing music, um, and you know you don't get the support of the record label or the person handling radio for you just doesn't like you, um, or for whatever reason. But I think you know the easy answer is is that I think that they were almost too Canadian for their own good, which mm. is why we appreciate them more. It's hard when you're in Los Angeles to actually care about a town called Bob Cajun. It's hard to think about Wheat Kings when you're living in Brooklyn, New York. There's just a lot of things that, that didn't make a lot of sense for Americans, although they were much bigger than I think people give credit for in those neighboring cities of Canada and America, like Minneapolis and Seattle, Cleveland, Buffalo. Um, those places love the tragedy, yeah, but I think that because they were they were so Canadian and the manager and the band decided to you know maybe just put a little bit more focus on here and sell a million copies every time that they went out and it served them correct. For sure, and you know they were able to be socially conscious, and 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 a lot of focus on uh, some different things like that. They have a, a cannabis company, so uh, um, I I love it. I I love that there are our own sort of thing, and and you know not to not as many people know the know about them. You know when you when you compare to you know a Celine Dion or Nickelback or uh, yeah. you know even Neil Young, who is my favorite artist. Uh, you know as the the rest of the world knows all about them, and and it's almost like tragic hip is our own little Canadian secret, sort of. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's almost like, you know, these, these record labels continue to understand that Canada's worth 4% of the world market when it comes to to the, to the world the worldwide music scene. And you can spend time here in Canada honing your talent, and earning your stripes and, and being on the road and, and, and all of that stuff. But, you know, sooner than later, you got to hit that trigger when it comes to America and the UK. Uh, and sometimes you only get one shot at it. And with the tragically hip, um, they just decided to put more of an emphasis and a focus on on being Canada's band. And it's funny because nobody mentioned Blue Rodeo. Yeah. I mean, nobody mentioned the fact that, you know, why didn't Blue Rodeo hit? Or why didn't Headley hit? Or why didn't all these amazing artists that, that you know, used to and still do, except for Headley, obviously, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, still sell out arenas. But it seems like the tragically hip is always that lightning rod. It's almost like we're personally offended. <laughs> that the Americans didn't like us as a whole because they don't like the tragically hip. A lot of people do, especially in radio. Um, it just didn't click for them for whatever reason. What about for you? What was the first band or artist that clicked for you? Um, when I saw American Hot Wax as a kid, um, I was eight years old and I went to a movie theater. My parents went to see a Neil Simon film. I went to the other movie theaters in small town in Barrie, Ontario. So it was completely safe. Don't worry. Um, and it told the story of the Cleveland DJ from in the 1950s named Alan Freed, who actually coined the term rock and roll, but who also brought rock and roll to the masses, broke down segregation uh, in terms of shows and concerts. Um, right up there for an eight-year-old to watch 
Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry and actors pretending to be Danny and the Juniors and Little Richard and all the great rock and roll stars from, from 1950 um, was mind-blowing to me. And, and still to this day, that's my, that's my ground zero. That's my year zero for music is, is at the beginning of rock and roll. Um, and all those people, like, I went out, started buying all the albums, and that was it. I, I was hooked. And I knew I, need, I knew I wanted to do something in music, but I knew I had no musical talent whatsoever. And I still don't. So I, I dreamed of working and hanging out with these musicians that they were like sci-fi people to me. They were like Star Wars figurines. <laughs> I had no idea who these people were or even how to get to them. Um, and then later on, at 12 years old, I had a subscription to Billboard magazine for my birthday, and that was it. The more stories I read about how the industry worked and operated, the more I kind of figured out a path to take and uh, just worked really, really hard. So that movie, though, was, was it to me. That, that, you know, when, when I read about Tom Petty watching The Beatles on Ed Sullivan and saying, that's what I want to do, I feel that because I had the, that moment. I just didn't get to go up in front of 65 million people. And, and play for them. So you didn't want to play guitar. Uh, did you want to be like a, a, a journalist, like an, an, an almost famous, or did you want to be like a, a publicist, What kind of what you're doing right now? You, or did you just say, I just want to be around music? I, I was the world's worst drummer in the world's <laughs> worst cover band in high school. It was awful. It was, I'm great on my steering wheel. In driving, I'm amazing. I, I've got the pedals down. I've got the hi-hat. Um, thin air, I'm great. Um, but I, I, I sunk, I sunk at everything. Um, you know, I think everybody in the music industry wants to be the lead singer. Everybody wants to be Mick Jagger or Joni Mitchell or, you know, playing in the Go-Go's or being in a riot girl band or being Joan Jett. Um, uh, sure. Uh, that stuff is awesome. And, and, I, and I've had moments like that in my life where I got to front, you know, a real band, but I, I was awful. And, but I realized that I loved the story. I loved why things were happening the way that they are. I love trying to find something like two or three really good angles for people to write about because I love reading newspapers and magazines and blogs all the time. So I'm always looking for, for just really cool stories for people to know because that's what attracted me to being a music fan. It wasn't just about the songs. It was what kind of a person they are. What, what was going on economically around them? What was going on in their life, in school, in work, in business, in marriage, in culture, um, in politics, all that stuff affects music. And I, and I devour all of that stuff because the more I know about music, I feel that the more I know about the world that's around me outside of music. I have you beat with the, the worst band. I was the lead singer for the flying oranges and we, we but eric we weren't just a bad cover band we thought we were cool and write our own songs and they're some of right. the worst stuff ever so i apologize to my neighbors back in brandon manitoba in the, uh, <laughs> in the 90s for the uh the flying oranges but we all go through that phase where I we think you, we can be in a band I right had like you had, you had, uh, at least you thought that you could do this <laughs> yeah. I, I i listened to myself and i thought there's no way I'm going to get better. Like a drummer's job primarily, other than counting to four several times over, should you be able to keep the beat? I couldn't do that. Right. I, I was, you know, and, and I'm a music fanatic, but I just stick me in front of an instrument and now I, I couldn't do that at all. 
So you get into the music industry. So, and, and what is that like? You're working along artists that you admired as a fan and you're, you're still a fan, but now you're in a professional environment, even though people think probably the music industry is, is all loose and relaxed. There is a, there has to be a professionalism to it because it's still running. So what was that transition like going from, wow, I really love that guy to now I really have to work with that guy or girl. Um, I, I stunk at the beginning of my career. Uh, there's, there's no doubt. Um, there were, there were publicists in this city and people in the music industry that, that I admired just, just for their longevity and the people that they worked with. So I realized that they, that they're great. I just had no idea what they did day to day. Um, but I had three rules when I first started out and I had my own company as a publicist. It was, it was do it faster, do it better and do it cheaper than anybody else. So other publicists were charging a thousand dollars a month and I was charging a hundred dollars. And the reason for that was so that I could work with bands. I had no right to have a publicist, but could afford me. And so I made all my mistakes while they were making mistakes. And we just learned together. Mm. And the, the better that I got at not making mistakes and writing press releases and crafting ideas and going out and not saying the stupid thing in front of an artist that I've long admired. The, the more that I got better at that, um, the bigger the artist got around me. And, and uh, then when the opportunities came to work with like legendary artists like uh, Ray Charles or um, Sinead O'Connor or, um, you know, those kind of statuses where you are one of a thousand people that they've met that, that is helping them out that year, um, it, it's mind blowing. And, you know, part of it is, is, you know, you're, you're looking at them going, that's your Ringo star. Hmm. Like you were in the Beatles. Like there's only four of you that were in the Beatles and here's one. So part of me is still a massive fan of all these people I work with, even with the indie artists, because they do magic. They do things that I can't comprehend how they do. You know, you and I, we were talking before we started taping about just your technical aspects of it. I think you might've said two or three really simple things to me that make no sense whatsoever, <laughs> you know, but, but I knew, I, I know how this industry works. Um, you know, to the level that I need it to be. And, uh, you know, just my, my undying enthusiasm for this industry and the people that make the music get me through every single day. I, I'd imagine you've seen uh, some amazing performances, but is there one band or artist you never had a chance to see that you wish you could more than another? Um, I never saw David Bowie. Um, and, and I've always felt that he was probably one artist that I would have loved if I, if I really, really took the time to, um, um, to, to dig deep into his catalog. I long admired him. Um, you can't say anything bad about him, but for some reason, he's just one artist to me that, that I that I kind of missed out on through everything. Um, and I just never clicked with him. So I'm going to say David Bowie because uh, there seemed to be a David Bowie for everybody. I love music, uh, uh, you know, movies, biopics, documentaries, anything. And there's there's two moments in music history I would love to go back and be just a fly on the wall in the room for. It's when John Deacon played the bass line for Another One Bites the Dust. And listen, I know movies <laughs> dramatize uh, scenes and things, so maybe it didn't exactly happen like that for Queen, but that bass line is legendary. So the first time you ever hear that bass line would be so cool. And the other is in Rocket Man when Elton John plays your song for the very first time in his mom's home at the piano. 
Um, th- those are two like, yeah. man, I just wish I could be there to hear that bass line for the first time or that piano for the first time. Uh, is there is there a moment in history you would go back to? Yeah, when Phil Collins was working with Peter Gabriel on on his solo album back in 1979, they, they accidentally created the gated drum sound, which um, that's the sound that, uh, that's heard in, in that little drum fill and that drum solo in, in the air tonight. It's got a very um, crunchy sound, but big. And they accidentally created it in the studio um, because the producer compressed the drum sound so much by accident that when he heard what he had di- what, what he had done, um, both Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins and the producer said, "Well, let's just use that for one song." Hmm. And it turned out to literally build Phil Collins' drumming career and the sound of the 1980s. What's interesting about your choices, though, and, and and I'm, I'm flabbergasted whenever artists will tell me this. 99% of the classic songs that you and I know and heard a million times, the artist has absolutely no idea that it's going to be a hit. And in fact, a lot of them hate them because it almost came too easy for them or it was the last song on the album that was recorded or that it was just a throwaway B-side that they had no idea was going to be a hit. That's the stuff that blows me away. So it's funny when you say stuff like, and you ask that question, because I've never thought about that question before. Um, And it wouldn't be historic because nobody would actually know that 50 years later, we'd still be talking about another one by the dead. You know what I mean? That's the great thing about music. is like so many songs that we know were just throwaways. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so amazing what uh, a little twist of fate can, uh, can have in, in, a, in a recording session. Uh, you had a chance to work uh, with Ringo Starr, which is so amazing, and I want to talk about that in a second. But if all four Beatles were still alive, who do you think would be the most successful commercially? Uh, Papa Carney with no doubt. Still. I mean, he, he knows his way around the song. Um, although the older I get, the more I admire George Harrison's songwriting and his music. So, but I, Paul McCartney by far, and I'm kind of cheating because he's still alive and he's still one of three artists in music history to sell 100 million copies as a group and as a, and as a solo artist as well. So I'm going to take the easy way out and say him. Yeah, and 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 I I often George Harrison for me is uh, is my favorite Beatle. We my wife walked down the aisle to "Here Comes the Sun," and so we, we oh, really love that. Um, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, it was a really it was a really touching moment. I always wonder about John Lennon though. I I always wonder if you know if John Lennon had stayed alive, would he have maybe become more commercial than he was before that? I always wonder what would have happened with him. He would have loved grunge, and yeah. he would have hated Twitter. Oh yeah, <laughs> and no he would kidding, have loved eh? loved the early '90s stuff, and probably probably would have looked at Britney Spears' "New Kids on the Block," uh, "Backstreet Boys," and said, "Yeah, you know, we used to write songs like that too." You know, and <laughs> and uh, it just I, I think he would have been way more avant garde than people give him credit for. I, I think the influence of Yoko Ono on his life cannot be understated. And as long as they were together, I don't think he would have ever gone, gone, you know, to number one anytime soon. In fact, you know, people tend to forget when, when, when double fantasy, that last album um, in his life came out, critics hated it. They bombed it. And it didn't do very, very well after he got shot. 
and killed in December, that's when it starts to sell and become a classic album. But critics, for the most part, they didn't give him any leeway because he was a Beatle. In fact, you know, they didn't really give Paul McCartney any leeway either. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really until all those albums started coming out again on CDs was when a whole generation of people forgot how good they were. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, together their songwriting is legendary and, and even apart, uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I can listen to anything that a, that a Beatle puts out. So I, I want to ask you yeah. about super groups. And when, when I was a kid in high school, uh, you know, one of my best friends, uh, Jeff Moga was the drummer in a band called the flower pots, this band in uh, local band in Brandon. And, and we would go to their shows and, you know, we were like the, the, the roadie you guys friends. Come up with the worst names for a band. <laughs> I don't know. The, fl- the, 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 the flower pots. And, and what were the other ones? The, the flying oranges? No, mine was the flying oranges. Yeah. And I have a friend who has a cover band named slappy pappy. So it must be Flappy a Brandon Pappy. thing. See, that, that's what happens when you guys spend nine months of the year yes. in winter yes. stuck in your home. Yes. You have no way of collaborating really great ideas when it comes to band names. That's right. So we would <laughs> sit there, in, and this is how we would spend like classes in high school. We would draft bands. Like, uh, you know, I get this guy, I guess. Like, kind of what we did in one-timers with uh, oh, that's awesome. creating the that's four great. bands. So I, I want to talk sure about... you got laid a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, yeah. Um <laughs> I, I really didn't, but um, super groups, that's, that's a concept that I was trying to figure out was, was the traveling Wilburys the first super group or, you know, the highwaymen, you know, went, I don't know, I don't know exactly about time frame, but what are your thoughts on super groups and who do you think was the first super group? Yeah. You know, I, I think that, that you can make a case for artists, for bands like Cream or Crosby Steel's Nash Young, right. um, Mamas and Papas in the sixties, like they, they were all pretty known separately, maybe not to the extent, but I remember growing up, um, Asia was a huge group. They had the number one album with their debut album back in 81. Um, yes, seemed to be a super group because they just kept changing members every three days. Right. Um, but, but I think for our generation, yeah, I, I think people were blown away by, by just the, tra- by, by the traveling wheelberries just existing as a, as a con- as an idea, you know, to get like the greatest singer songwriters and players in, in a room. Um, and what's interesting is that we don't have more of that, but this generation of music lovers, of teenagers, are so used to their own version of supergroups. You would never, I mean, we, we, we just brushed this off, by, but right now the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 is a song by Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande. Right. We have been blessed with, um, you know, Beyonce and Lady Gaga. We've been blessed with with cup with with songs of of the big you know Bieber and Drake and and Bieber and this person it, it's amazing because back when I was growing up you never had that you had Billy Bragg with Elvis Costello and it was like oh that's cool that you're a geek and you love those two but the rest of the world doesn't care right right now we have the biggest artists in history collaborating with one another so it's not necessarily a super group because I think the group part of it. I think it's too easy now, too. You've got the ability to change and exchange files over the internet. You have a lot of bands that are collaborating with one another for maybe a song or an album. Um, but we seem to take for granted how rare and beautiful it was when people who normally pass each other on the concert tours in the middle of the night actually have a wide schedule open enough to actually create an album and forget about even going out on tour. Mm-hmm. Just creating an album in six months with all, with you know, 
Bob Dylan and 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 George Harrison and Roy Orbison and Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty, getting those five guys in the room, it, the amount of managers that would have to deal with 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 this issue is is astronomical. So I think we take it for granted now the collaboration process. Well, and I, I think there would be a great could, you could make a great reality show if you could get four drummers, four guitarists, four bassists, and four lyricists. You, you have a contest where you have four fans and they draft a, a band and then those guys go perform, come back, perform. And, and if you could ever get the artist to collaborate, that's a reality show I would watch. And I don't like a lot of reality shows, but seeing, <laughs> seeing a, a, a drummer from one band uh, play with somebody from another band in another genre, I think would be kind of an interesting concept. Yeah, we, 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 and the only time when we really kind of get to see a little bit of that is during the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, right? Where right. the 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 artist, you know, the fan gets to choose who's in it because it's a fan vote, at least for one artist. But you know, the Grammys do that um, pretty well when they hook up Little Big Town and Fleetwood Mac together, or they'll do Dolly Parton and some punk band that just broke big. But for the most part, though, it's a little bit sleepy. It's a little bit middle of the road. It's it's too safe um but but that's okay because that's the grammy show is it for me it's for the other people to get into uh and discover new music on it but yeah i think that's a great idea look with with 750 channels on my television set i'm sure somebody was willing to pick up that show <laughs> no kidding um uh, okay so you have had an opportunity to work with some amazing uh bands and artists and i and i'd just like to chat with you uh, about a few of them uh, and and i you know i'm a i'm a massive uh beatles fan like you know billions of other people but you know in the 90s uh we would listen to sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band in a house we rented in north end winnipeg put all the speakers around us and just be like did you hear that chicken did you hear this did you you know like i was just <laughs> i was just blown away and yeah, it was you know high some of the time as well uh so it was uh, yeah, a bit of an influence but uh to to have met ringo star and worked with ringo star i mean that to me would be like meeting a member of the royal family yeah, that that was special. That was one of the the handful of times where I was terrified to meet him because I'm like you. You know, there are certain artists that I think about every day, not because I'm obsessed with them, but because I'm obsessed with them. Um, but also, um, they they have they've infiltrated my day to day life. When you hear a Beatles cover, you hear a Beatles song. So, uh, yeah, Ringo Starr um, got signed by Koch Records, a label that I was doing the PR for in Canada. And um, there were a, a number of years where during his, uh, his Ringo Starr and the All-Star Band, um, he used to rehearse up at Casino Rama in a small town called Rama, Ontario. And in his band were people like Howard Jones and Roger Hawson from Super Tramp and Peter Frampton and Randy Bachman and just guys he wanted to tour with and hang out with for the summer. It was like you going up for a weekend with your best friends. Ringo would do the same thing, except that he would just go out on tour. So I got to hang out with the whole band and him for a number of days kicking off the tour. Did a couple of worldwide press conferences, did two shows with them at the grandma and uh, sent them off their meal today and told them the world. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't regret this, but I never sat down with him and talked about the band. I was too terrified to because what are you going to ask him? Yeah. Like, what are you going to ask him that you think he's going to be interested in telling you? And I didn't really want him to say, oh, just 
read the book, you know? And, um, but, you know, I wanted to ask, the only thing I wanted to ask him was, you know, uh, explain to me about this whole Paul McCartney is dead thing. Like, I'm fascinated with that. And I don't believe that, that Paul McCartney is dead, but I loved all the clues that they put in there. And I just don't believe that they're all in there from them. So I, I wanted him to tell me a secret about that, but I didn't get that very far with him. But I got to spend a, a, a lot of moments with him. He was as funny and smart and amazing as, as you would hope that he is. I, I, yeah, I, I would just ask him uh, to, to give me a little of this. Peace and love, peace and love. <laughs> if, if, if that's all he I heard did, that. I would be, I would I be impressed. That. I heard that a lot. Oh, he does. He literally does say that quite often. Oh, every, uh, at least once an hour, at least. Oh, yeah. That's that's his fear, and that's his hey. That's his peace and love. Peace and love. Oh, yeah. That, that's so brilliant. Um, Ray Charles, you met, and you know, when we talk about the Beatles and and how they uh, impacted the music. Um, you have to say the same thing about. Ray Charles. At what point in, in his uh, life and career did you get to interact with him? Yeah, I, I met him on a couple of occasions just as a fan, but when he got, when he was signed to a, uh, the, one of the world's biggest jazz label, Concord Records, for the Genius Buds Company album, it was his last album um, when he was alive, and it was the, the, the duet album uh, with uh, Nora Jones, among others. And um, it was probably one of the biggest albums I've ever worked to this day. Um, there was a lot of setups for it. And it was around the, 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 the time when, um, you know, uh, Stevie Wonder was getting a little bit of a resurgence. Ray Charles was getting in, uh, you know, becoming popular again. It just seems like all of the award shows started acknowledging these, these amazing geniuses that were, that were still around and alive. Um, and then, you know, he died around that time, too. So he never got to tour it. But... Um, that was certainly one of the biggest records I've ever worked and uh, got to sit down with him before the album came out and just talked a little bit about his history and about the making of the record. So that was that was pretty special, too. Yeah, that would have been uh, interesting to just, you know, hear his perspective on music, right? On, on whether it's making music or listening to music even. Yeah, and and, and that's sometimes, I, I, I don't believe that even the, the presidents of, of big, big, huge record labels ever lose sight of, too. It's like, you know, it, it, they're them. They're Ray Charles. It's Ringo Starr. It's Snoop Dogg. And you listen to them and you hear them and you're like, oh, that's why they're Ray Charles. That's why she's Sinead O'Connor, you know? I remember uh, most of my memories of Jerry Garcia are of uh, a white-haired guy uh, on stage mm -hmm. uh, late in his career. But I just rewatched Festival Express, and uh, man, that that is such an amazing documentary of the you know Janis Joplin, the band, uh, um, and the Grateful Dead, among so many others, taking this trip across Canada, and then here's Jerry Garcia, a young Jerry Garcia, and I was like, awesome. This is what I uh, you know I want to you know if I want to learn about the the Grateful Dead, there's a lot out there, but this was so cool to see. You know, a younger Jerry Garcia talking about, uh, you know, jamming with Janis Joplin. Um, you know, what was dealing with, uh, you know, what are the, the deadheads like? Yeah, well, what, what was interesting about him is that I never got into the Grateful Dead and I never got into Fish. I had a lot of friends that did that and I certainly went to my share of Grateful Dead shows. But anytime that I got to meet him as a fan, he was incredibly warm, incredibly soft-spoken, um, laughed a lot, um, smoked a lot. Um but I ended up working after he passed away with his estate 
um, in Canada for the for the Canadian releases of of a lot of the um, the archival footage and the, the archival CDs that that Jerry Garcia put out with a number of artists um, and a lot of those those tapes that end up coming out under his solo career. So for me, it, it, working with with um, working with the estate was fascinating because they were somebody who, as much as you think that they were big, and they were, I mean, one of the hottest tickets ever in music, uh, they always had the music and the music fans in line. You know, if, you, if you're if you any business and you lose sight of who your customers are and you don't care about them and you don't do right by them, you're going to lose. Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead and all of that stuff that it encompasses, including his estate, have treated his name with the utmost respect that I that I've loved, and I certainly learned a lot about um, about how to how to uh, how to do both, how to be a success, and also kind of you know do right by others. Well, the Grateful Dead, um, you know, m- maybe more than any other band, uh, at least in my opinion, connected with their fans. I mean, like they they wanted their fans to have that great experience. The, the one guy that I see today who is like that is, is Dave Grohl. I mean, every Foo Fighter show I see, it seems like Dave Grohl wants to make that show the best for those people. Like it's his first concert almost. And he really goes out of his way, I find. And, and listen, I haven't seen as many concerts as a lot of people, uh, but I, I love it when the artist really connects and really wants the the uh, the audience to to enjoy that. And and the Grateful Dead seem to connect with their audience in more ways than any other band. Any industry would be more than happy to have David Grohl in it. We should have more of them. Dave Grohl never forgot about where he came from, right. which is astounding. Where he is right now, nobody put his bet on Dave Grohl. They, they you know, him sleeping in a van, him sleeping on floors. He thought that was the greatest moment of his life. He just wanted to be a musician, hanging out with Kurt. No way in his mind did he ever think that he was even going to write a song. Um, he was almost like the Ringo of the band in, in the aspects of Nirvana could not have broken so big if it wasn't for Dave Grohl. And not just his playing, but his demeanor, his sense of humor, his looseness off stage um, kept that band going as long as they did um and and even though that nobody could have saved kurt cobain from himself dave Grohl became dave Grohl that we know and love because he is a true and true music fan uh neil young is probably my favorite artist and i love to claim that neil young is uh, manitoba's own and winnipeg's own but he did grow up a lot in ontario randy bachman on the other hand is pure manitoba you know winnipeg uh heart of that province and you know was in uh some pretty big bands uh, whether it's the guess who or bto uh you got to work with him is he underappreciated yeah oh oh for sure I, and i still work with him after all these years and what's what's great about randy and the reason why i think that he's still underappreciated is when it comes to the art of songwriting randy bachman has it down he steals from the best but in the best way possible. And I mean that is the highest compliment. He will take a, a, a verse or a guitar lick and turn it upside down, change it around, slow it down, speed it up, which is how all of these guitarists and drummers and bassists learned their instrument back in the day. They slowed down that 45 record to 16 
speed to learn how to play it. Randy did the same thing. And he is such, I mean, going back to like Dave Grohl becoming a music fan, Randy Bachman has more stories, I think, about this industry than anybody else with an active mind that understands not only how to talk on the radio and be engaging and personal, he's, He's so he's so awesome to talk to because you realize that he's just a little boy hanging out with people at, at Abbey Road too, you know. Um, and he taught me, you know, don't take anything for granted in not so many words. But when I see the sparkle in his eyes talking about being in Abbey Road studios and listening to the master tapes of, of Sgt. Pepper or Abbey Road, I'm not there in his enthusiasm so much. Because I think it's really cool, but he's coming at it from a musician's ears and eyes and brain. I'm just coming at it from a fan. So his is like 10 feet deeper than mine. But the sparkle in his eyes when he talks about that is is glorious um, as another music fan. Because I know that he hasn't lost sight of the enthusiasm that he grew up with. And he, he would be a guy who would have some perspective on what's happening right now, having you know, been in, the, you know, in that uh the, the 60s and the 70s and the protests that that were going on in, in that era, you know, he would have a, a pretty good perspective on, you know, what's happening today compared to then. Yeah, I mean, let's 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 do it. Let's let's try, you know, <laughs> as soon as this is over, I'll, I'll send him an email. He's a guy, by the way, that if you ask, hi, how are you? There goes your hour show. <laughs> All right. Oh, that would and, be... And, uh... and, you'll, and you'll love it. And yeah. you'll love it. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be absolutely yeah. beautiful. Um, one guy you worked with that maybe people, if they hear his name, they might be like, huh, I wonder who that is. But when they hear his voice, especially if they watch The Simpsons, uh, they will know. And, and obviously some some other great, great shows. But Harry Shearer. And, and I didn't know uh, Harry Shearer was, was so much into music. I, I was listening to some of his podcast uh, yesterday where he does some of his songs. And it's like a, a Simpsons character uh, podcast. It's, it's amazing. But uh, how did you get hooked up with Harry Shearer? Yeah, so Harry Shearer's wife, Judith Owen, is an amazing uh, singer-songwriter and a jazz pianist in her own right. Um, and uh, and I first worked with her, and then Harry ended up putting out a couple of albums uh, under a very small label um, as well. And so there was a time when they kind of crisscrossed into doing stuff. Um, he There was a, a label called Cougarette. So Harry put out a couple of albums. One is called Songs Pointed and Pointless and Songs of the Bushmen. Um, and Judith was putting out her own original material. So they used to travel together and do shows. Um, one of, uh, I mean, one of the funniest people on this planet. I mean, there you can't even, uh, from Spinal Tap to all of the, um, all of the amazing um, docu-movies that, or the, the mockumentary that he's been in um, to the Simpsons. Um, all you want to do is just not talk <laughs> and you just want him to like, r- like do a riff on life and, and not stop him. But, um, but him and Judith together were, were hysterical. Um, I, I remember there was, um, there was somebody who, when we were taking him out of the airport and into the car, somebody stopped him and, and said, you know, would you do this voice for me? And Harry said, are you, do I get paid to do this? And the guy said, no, he said, then I'm not doing it. And then got into the car, um, which, which sounds so mean and crushing. And it is, but 
how would you like to go through life where every single person right. that you meet asks you to do something like you're a monkey? <laughs> yeah, it'd be like that. Uh, remember, remember the character Jones from Police Academy that made all those noises. Like right, if every right. time that guy went out, he had to do the right. that stuff, right? <laughs> Yo, dude, Jimmy Hendrix. He was like, I just want to pick up my clean, like my cleaning stuff. Like I just want to, just want to go for a burger. No, 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 go, go do the, yeah. go, go make the the sound of a door creaking. It's yeah. like I just, I, I, I just want to fill up my car. Yeah, I just want to get my dry cleaning here. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. The 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 curse of being a good voice guy. Yeah. I, I would love Harry Shearer to be my voicemail guy because it's uh, he's got a great voice and his songs, uh, like you said, they're they're pretty creative. His his podcast is interesting because he'll be reading like a bit of a news story and then throw in like a comment in a different voice. So you're wondering if there's another person <laughs> in the room. That's amazing. Um, he's he's somebody who's. Uh... Uh, you know, going back to this whole politics thing. I mean, you know, one thing that social media has done is allowed everybody to, to pull the curtain back on who they really are as people. Um, and sometimes that mystique is gone. Um, you know, back in the day when we wanted to find out about an artist, we had to wait for Rolling Stone magazine to come right. out on the newsstand or, or NME once a month, um, you know, which you probably never got because you never had mail. Um, <laughs> but um, where... You know, we didn't even know anything until we read about it. And and Harry Shearer is certainly a guy that has kind of developed his own sense of style of revealing himself of who he is on social media. Um, and it's amazing, you know, you, you throw him in there with so many other people that, that are, are really political when you really get down to it. Uh, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, fantastic job in A Star is Born. Many years ago, Chris Christopherson uh, and I think Barbara Streisand uh, were in the movie a star is born and and i i love the highwaymen i love that group i'm I'm a western guy and it's it's one of the few country artists that i do uh, listen to i mean i i would just be like chris christopherson would be like the fawns i would think he is just so cool yeah. and collected and and i would almost be afraid to be in the same room as him he's so cool yeah and and he was and, and i completely understand when you're talking about that you would be afraid because he, because you don't want anybody else to think about how uncool you really are. Right. No yeah. matter how cool you are in your own life, and then you think, I, I, I'm cool, but I'm not Chris Christopherson's cool. Um, Chris was signed uh, for, for a number of years to John Prine's old, own label called Old Boy Records. And when John Prine got dropped from the major labels, he, um, him and his manager realized that they don't actually need the big machine anymore. They could actually have their own record label and their own distribution network and handle their own marketing because he had built enough audiences over the last 20, 25 years at the time to do it. So um, as a labor of love, two artists that he ended up signing was uh, Steve Goodman, who unfortunately passed away uh, a number of years earlier, but uh, a folk singer from Chicago that never really got his due, um, but is known throughout the folk circles. And Chris Christopherson. Uh, Chris was sitting on a number of, of albums that were never released, so John gladly put them out. And uh, Chris ended up touring a number of times in Canada, playing, you know, a lot of the casinos. Uh, and every time he came to Toronto, I got to hang out with him for a little bit. Um, just a sweetheart of a guy. Um, uh, cool, 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 cool. There's nothing... There, there was nothing arrogant or mean or, or sad about him at all. Yeah, I don't think people realize he wrote me and Bobby McGee. And then 
on yeah. on Festival Express, Janis Joplin, uh, Joplin actually re- references that you know Chris wrote, wrote this song, and then she you know she kind of I think she she plays a little bit, it, but but uh, you know him and and Waylon and Willie and and Johnny Cash are kind of like the Fab Four of the the male country artists in that group. Yeah, you know, Chris is a guy that I think is a little bit underappreciated and undervalued. Yep. Although that if, if you're a folk fan, you're probably snarking at that comment because you're like, what? But Chris <laughs> has never had, um, he's never had that second or third wave of success. Like we saw with Johnny Cash when he connected with Rick Rubin, um, with, yes. the, with the American recordings. Um, we saw it, a little bit of John Prine's number of years, um, but after he, he, he was stricken with cancer. I think people started to appreciate him a little bit more. Chris is a guy that um, that, that I think uh, for all the sales that he has done and for all the, 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 the brilliant solo stuff that he's worked on and the songs he's written for everybody um, uh, has kind of lost out on a generation of, of folk and country fans, um, although that he's probably your favorite country singer's favorite country singer. Yeah, that's that's a really good way of uh, putting it. All right, uh, some some hip hop artists now that you've worked with, and you know Snoop Dogg is uh, is you know legendary uh, when it comes to um, I, I guess his own unique sort of language, you might say. I mean, he <laughs> he he came came up with words that didn't exist. Yeah, he invented like snizzle. Yeah, you know, and dizzle fun, and whatever is it. For sure. Just take the first two letters of every word and just put izzle behind it and right. you've got your own language, like pig Latin. Um, I, I end up doing the, uh, the the PR in Canada for Death Row Records, which was home to Dr. Dre's The Chronic, uh, the first number of Snoop Dogg albums, uh, the Machiavelli and Tupac records. And um, we used to stay in the office and it still holds true as long as there's a 16 year old boy discovering pop for the first time, this catalog is going to sell over and over and over again. It's like dark side of the moon for the hip hop crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, this catalog will never, ever die. Snoop Dogg did a number of shows um, in the last couple of years. One of them, the last time I think I saw him was he was playing the thousand Island music festival in a small, small, small town in Ontario. Um, the population of it was maybe about 4,000 people and they expected about 35,000 people to come up to the festival. It was a little bit of a, of a strange town. They certainly weren't rap fans. They were definitely more country fans. Uh, but Snoop came in typically as Snoop does uh, about three and a half hours late to the show in a limousine that you couldn't even see him uh, because it was completely covered inside and out with smoke. Um, one of my greatest life pleasures, was telling Snoop Dogg that I couldn't smoke anymore that joint after two hits. And he just laughed at me um, in this puny, in this puny way that was just degrading to me, but in the nicest, kindest way possible that I had no right to even smoke with Snoop Dogg. Oh, that yeah. is so hilarious. So that that's what I wanted to do. You know, what's funny about meeting your, your heroes. I never wanted to play drums with Ringo Starr. I never wanted to have a guitar solo with, you know, little Stevie, from Bruce Springsteen, I kind of did want to have a joint with Snoop Dogg. And then you realize that, uh, I mean, after 10 or 12, he's just getting started. You, you know what I mean? He's warming up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's just warming up. It, it, it's like when, when he's on his 12th joint, it's like a baseball player swinging three or four bats with the donuts on it. Yeah. It's just he can do it, but he's just not even in his groove right now. He literally has a guy that hangs out with him, and all that guy does yep. is roll joints. That's all he does. That's, that's all he when does. you know that you that that that's when you know that not only do you have too much money, <laughs> but you are enjoying a finer life 
than you and I can ever dream of. Yeah, it, it, it's so interesting yeah. with Snoop Dogg. I mean, he, how do you find a guy like that? Do you yeah. go on LinkedIn? I don't know. I think it's just one of his buddies that he met hanging out yeah. at a club probably one night, and he's like, "Damn, this is a fine ass joint. You're hired." I, I'm putting the wrong. In, I'm putting the wrong experience on my LinkedIn. <laughs> I, I think that's where it is. I, I, I think I've. I, yeah, I think in the eighties, I start. I, I could start putting before I started working at record label that I saw God on an on an LSD acid trip and see what that does for me. Yeah, no kidding. I think that the, <laughs> the interesting with uh, Snoop Dogg is that he, he's a massive hockey fan. I mean, he's literally in the EA Sports NHL video game. Uh, halfway through some of the games, he just starts doing play by play in the booth. Like he visits the booth. So he, <laughs> he loves hockey. Uh, he's got his own cannabis brand, as uh, we know. It's called LBS. Yeah. Um, uh, but the right. rules in Canada, you can't do any uh, promotion or, or celebrity endorsement. He's he's big into these uh, these cooking shows that he was doing with Martha yeah. Stewart. I mean, this guy for uh, uh, for staying relevant has done a pretty amazing job. And people, people have to remember, this was a guy that was literally charged with murder. In right. a, you know, when he was first starting out, hanging out with NWA. That was the weird thing about watching certain artists get older. Um, when Ice Cube started to become a family movie lead actor, right. that must have blown the people away from Compton. And I'm fascinated with that because the, it's the ability of people either calling him a sellout or saying, you won. Like you did it. You you got to do what you wanted to do at all aspects of your life. And what more can be said about the the evolution of of Soup Dog? Uh, just going from an absolute hardcore rapper to going in a family friendly direction that not even Dr. Dre or Eminem could have ever done for their lives. Even Jay Z and Beyonce, for all of their fame and worldwide success. They still have a level of street cred, mm-hmm. uh, of, of street credibility that they can't jump over that curb. Snoop Dogg can. If Snoop Dogg decided to go on Sesame Street, nobody would even bat an eyelash. Right. How much different was working in the hip hop scene compared to you know some of the artists that you had had worked with before? Um, were, were the uh, the artists different? Were the entourages uh, really different? Like, what was the difference between, uh, say, rock and hip hop, and in dealing with the artists? Um, I'm going to be really truly honest. There, from a from a publicist perspective, it's not really different. You're you're really still trying to pitch the media, whether it's the dailies or the weeklies or or the TV or radio stations. Um, you, you're pitching them the same opportunities. You you can't you know just because Snoop Dogg gives you the attitude like he's slacking off, he's not. He's just getting things done faster than you are in the things that he needs to get done. And he also has people to help him out. Where the difference was, it's the community that is based around it is very different. Um, you know, Snoop Dogg and, and, and rappers, whether you're on, um, uh, you know, whether you're on death row or whether you were on Koch Records, you're carrying, you know, 15, 20 people of an entourage. You would never have that in a rock band. There, there's just no way the manager would say you're just completely wasting money. But in the hip hop community, it's kind of your job and your, your, um, your goal is to bring up the people that you grew up with and, and elevate them as well. So you're not just talking about Snoop Dogg when you're talking about maybe booking him for a show, you get all that Snoop Dogg community is, and that could be anywhere between five to seven to 15 people. Um, but certainly the way that I talked and dealt with Snoop Dogg is much different than the way that I talk and dealt with the Wiggles. 
<laughs> I would, I would, I would assume so. Um, I would hope so. Yeah, uh, yeah. We we talked about Randy Bachman kind of uh, being around uh, during a real protest era. Public Enemy has been talking about some of the stuff people are protesting over for years. I mean, nine one one is a joke. Uh, is a, a, a direct slap uh, or a direct, um, uh, I guess, uh, accusation yeah. of racism uh, when it comes to to uh, minorities. Uh, and I, listen, I love uh, Public Enemy. I was I used to like listen to that. Cool Modi was the first rapper I got into, and then I got into Public Enemy. Um, they really had a social conscience about them, and they they had a message that they were trying to get out there. Sometimes it 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 got uh, maybe convoluted a little bit by some of the mainstream media. Uh, they they twisted yeah. it a little bit, but you know what was that like working with Public Enemy? Um, yeah, you, you know it, it, it's no it's no big secret that um, that from a, a, a white teenage boy with you know uh, with certain luxuries that this life has been able to afford based on what what their parents did for a living. Um, you know, I, I had a very privileged life, um, and when Public Enemy came um, came to the forefront back in 1987 with Yo Bum Rush the Show, and then it takes a million uh, a nation million to hold us back in the next year. It was it was a mind blowing experience to know that music like this even existed because for a long time hip hop was, you know, um, it was rapper's delight. It was fun. It was MC hammer. It Young was MC. Um, vanilla yeah. yeah. And, and so it was like poppy and, and inexperienced and, um, inoffensive. And then this band comes along and shows you a world that, you know, exists in your community and in your country and your city and around you, but they are showing it to you. And it's popular. Like this was selling by the truckload. So when, um, so after that, when public enemy decided that they were going to get signed to Koch for the revolve revolution album, Back in 2002, um, I worked them for a number of releases, including their own Slam Jams release. Um, worked, I think, almost seven or eight albums. And then they end up having their own record label after that, which we were distributing. Uh, I actually just saw Chuck D and Public Enemy Radio, which the band is now known, uh, last summer. I uh, got to do an interview with him for Sirius XM, show off the tape, and then just talk for another three and a half hours almost, um, just about everything. He is He's just a wealth of knowledge. There's, there's, few peop- there's, there's people that you and I get to meet where you don't know if what they're talking about is true. You just know that it's true. Right. When Chuck D speaks, it's the truth. KRS-One speaks the truth. Chuck speaks the truth. Um, Johnny Cash spoke the truth. Uh, Mick, uh, Mick from The Clash. Uh, Joe Strummer. These guys are the truth. Steve Earle. I mean, people like that are once in a generation for people. Uh, and I'm just so, so honored and pleased that I, that I got to spend all that time with him. All right, let's wrap with this guy um, and the kind of the, the opposite of really the opposite of a public enemy, but a guy who had a really big impact on a lot of Canadians and, and myself, and that's Fred Penner. Uh, uh, you know, a, a guy that was <laughs> always on TV when I was a kid and, you know, and, 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 you know, probably influenced so many more Canadian kids and American kids that he, that then they've ever realized what was dealing with, uh, and, and working, what's uh, Fred Penner like? Fred is, um, one of the kindest, nicest, um, open hearted, warm, uh, people I've ever met in my whole life. Um, we, we've worked together now for. Uh, nine, ten years. Um, I talk to him almost every day. Um, 
when I get an email from him, my whole world turns orange and yellow mm-hmm. and very happy. Um, Fred is a, is a, is a shining light in this world. Um, uh, I, I, something happened, you know, it's funny that, that you put it in the order, you know, Fred Penner has had a resurgence, um, like nobody else I've, I've seen in this country, not even Rafi when it comes to the hmm. children's music category. Um, Rafi was always kind of based in the eco in the ecology and the environmental action. Fred pivoted a, a couple of years ago. Um, and he did an album with Alex Cuba and Ron Sexsmith and a number of other kind of hip, awesome artists that reintroduced him to a whole generation of parents who grew up with him, who now have kids that are listening to them. And I know people will say that about a lot of artists. You go to an Elton John show and there's people between the ages of seven and 70, but the children's category is fickle. The most of the time, the, the music that you grew up with listening to in the children's category, you do not want to listen to once you get out of it. Um, I, I worked a lot of this stuff with Barney and Strawberry Shortcake and Franklin and a lot of that, those properties. And they, they seem to have that shelf life like most things do. Um, the very few exceptions um, were uh, really were, were Fred Penner and Sesame Street. And um, even the Wiggles, um, you know, when I was working them, they went from a group of Australian guys who finished playing in a punk band to um, seemingly making their sign out of saran wrap uh, so it would shine off the lights because they couldn't afford anything else to selling out the Roger Center here in Toronto, two shows at almost 30,000 people for each show. They were like the Beatles to a lot of kids. But even that generation hasn't rediscovered them yet. Um, Fred Penner is probably, I mean, just give him all the awards. Give him all the Lifetime Achievement Awards. He's earned it. He's just a brilliant guy. And he is one absolutely I'm going to go and, and try to get on this show too. Awesome. This has been so much fun, Eric. Yeah, you can find more information at thatericeralper.com and you can find Eric on uh, Sirius XM channel 167 six times a weekend. What a fun conversation. I could have done this so much longer. We'll have to do it again. And uh, um, best of luck in, in, in everything we're going through. And um, I, I really... I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, I had tickets for Roger Waters this summer and I know that's not going to happen, but I'm looking forward, uh, to the, the creativity that the music industry comes out of this with. Yeah, for sure. And it's nothing short of a, of an honor and pleasure to talk to you, Dean. And, uh, um, this been, this been great. And, uh, you know, let's definitely keep in touch and, and thank you everybody that's still listening, which would be my mother. Tides out, I'm in love with my lover. This is the Sports and More podcast with Dean Millard. Zigzags, loose change, and a brand new diamond ring. The bottom of a beach bag. That is the great sounds of a sweet bejesus. That's Beach Bag uh, from their debut album, Policeman's Creek. You can find it on uh, Apple Music uh, and iTunes. It's a wonderful album. And you can find more about Eric Alper at, Eric, at thateric.com.
That's www.thatericalpert.com. He's also on Sirius XM channel 167 six times a weekend. Uh, so check it out, uh, the Eric Elper Show on uh, channel 167. That was such a cool conversation uh, uh, to hear some of uh, the interactions he's had with some of the biggest names in music and, and you know where he thinks the music industry is going. Certainly, as mentioned, I was looking forward to seeing Roger Waters this year. Who knows if I'll see Roger Waters again now? And in what format will it be? Uh, certainly, there's a lot to be sorted out and first and foremost is uh, making sure that we are in control before we even think about getting back together and online concerts could be the thing that post malone nirvana show was out of sight man uh it was so good Dynamite. yeah a hundred percent that's how good it was so i'm i'm up for more of that stuff man i'm i'm up for more um artists uh, putting on shows and you know if they start charging them and then you get a code so be it i don't know i, I don't have a problem watching a uh, as long as it's good as long as the broadcast quality is good um i'll watch a show I, i'm not going to still pay the amount of money i was going to pay before uh, to see roger waters but i still would um i don't, I don't know i don't know we'll see what we'll see what it's like uh, we have so much more to uh, sort out uh, before we get there. And before we go, we have to give you the ultimate franchise fantasy sports poll question. I put this up out on Twitter at Duck Millard. And uh, in the players versus owners dispute, who do you side with when it comes to Major League Baseball? They're trying to figure out how to come back. They've, they've agreed on, uh, apparently, uh, three divisions at least. Uh, so no more ALNL for this year. It's just three divisions, West, Central, and East. And you'll play. Uh, so, for instance, the Dodgers and the Oakland A's are in the same division because they're in the same uh, geographical region. But they still have to figure out uh, the baseball season. And, you know, the owners, uh, the, the players already came to a deal with the owners in March about taking a certain amount of pay cut and prorating their salaries, and the owners agreed to it. And now they're coming back with they wanting another answer. So I want to know who you're siding with. 74% right now say players, and I'm with the players. It, it, in the end, it's millionaires arguing with billionaires at a time when businesses are going under and uh, people are struggling to get by. But if you ask me, I'm, I'm with the players. 29 out of 30 teams are worth a billion dollars and made money last year in Major League Baseball. You know, it's not, the, it's not the Clayton Kershaws or the Bryce Harpers I'm worried about. It's the, the low-end players, particularly the minor league players that are getting screwed and are going to get screwed on this uh, owner's uh, prop, uh, proposal for how they're going to do it. And the, the owners that are cutting players right now to save five, six, seven, eight hundred, maybe a thousand dollars a week. Ooh, for the billionaire, what the hell is a thousand dollars? Am I hot? Yeah, I'm hot. That's a crock of crap. You said it, Greta. It's a crock of crap. You know, that $450 that player was getting meant a lot to him, a lot more than it does to the billionaire owner. So I'm on the player side in this one. And hopefully, um, 
that hopefully, first of all, we get through it. Like I said, when I was talking about concerts and, and if we have to come back with no players, well, at least the owners are getting a good chunk of TV deal money. I'm on the side of players. Hopefully we get back and they get a fair deal. And as mentioned, now is the perfect time to get in on the ultimate franchise fantasy sports. Their hockey league. There's only 31 franchises available. When Seattle comes, there'll be another. There are eight left. If you want to draft your own team, you can bid right now. You'll win a spot at the draft lottery table. Also, if you're a current owner and you didn't draft your team like me, you can put your players back in the pool and join the party. That's what I'm doing. So there's eight franchises available. I'm joining. That's nine. A pool of nine players will be available and you can draft your own team. First, though, you got to bid on a spot at the draft table. Then you can draft your own team. Check it all out at www.uffsports.com. It is the most realistic fantasy platform out there, and I can't wait. i got to wrap this up because I'm in the uh, EA Sports Game 3 final. Can't wait. Get a jersey especially if I win. Big thanks to Eric Alper for joining me on the show this week. That was such a great conversation. You can find more at thatericalper.com and find him on Sirius XM Radio, channel 167, six times a weekend for the Eric Alper show. If you'd like to be a part of this show, please let me know uh, as an advertiser, especially sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. But if you think you have a good story to tell, shoot me an email stay safe stay healthy everybody and uh, to the people uh, protesting for change in the united states um, this guy in canada is certainly with you 100 percent. as we go here is sweet but jesus the huge song you can check out their debut album policeman's creek on apple music playtime is over up with my huge hands I could wave to someone in Yucatan if I held up my two huge hands I could bury everyone in sand if I only had those two huge hands maybe I could reach you then maybe I could touch you again if I had two Think of all the people I could meet If I only had two huge feet It would take me three steps to get to Crete With my two enormous feet Think of all the things I could crush beneath If I stamped my two huge feet I could reach you then Maybe I could please you again If I had huge feet and hands I've been away from you too long I hope that I can reach you with this huge song We've been up
everyone would catch all of my lies I would think that I could eat 60 pies If I had two huge eyes I could see where we all go when we die If I had two huge eyes Maybe I could see you then Maybe you would love me again With my huge eyes, feet and hands I could break down emotional walls if I had two huge balls I could float myself down Niagara Falls Right on top of my huge balls I would give 14 curtain calls If I could show off my 